I'll invite you guys to take, take your Bibles and turn with me this morning for our, our scripture reading for our sermon text. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah 48. If you'll please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. I'm going to read verses 3 through 11. Isaiah 48, verses 3 through 11. This is God's holy word. For us, his people. God's word says, The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you had never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard. You have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth, you were called a rebel. For my namesake... I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. This is God's holy and inspired scripture for us. Let's ask him to bless our time in this word. Father, your word is power. Your word is light and truth. Your word is strong and mighty. It cuts us deep. It reveals hidden things. It shows us the way we should go. It illumines our path. It corrects us. It's sufficient, fully sufficient to equip us to walk in all godliness and obedience before you. You've told us in your word what it is you want us to believe and what it is you want us to do. Open our eyes, our ears, so we can see and listen to all that you say today. Through your word. Speak to us, Lord. Reveal yourself through the preaching of this word. May I, your humble servant, disappear. May you stand forth in glory and power today and satisfy our souls with the vision we get of you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you guys may know that I used to work at CVS Pharmacy. Um, I worked at three different CVSs in two different, two different states uh, for a grand total of like maybe three years or so. And my favorite CVS experience was in the last, the last store I worked in. After me and Sarah got married and moved to Boiling Springs, North Carolina, where Gardner-Webb University is, where she was finishing school, and I got a job on the big CVS on the corner. Okay, Boiling Springs is a stoplight. It's, it's an intersection. Okay, and there are like nine people who live there, and then all the college students. So it's, it's, it's wild. And I'm at CVS, and the assistant store manager, her name is Sue. Me and Sue didn't get along. 
Um, Sue had been a store manager for like decades, and then she took a step down to become an assistant store manager, and she was going to retire in a couple of years. So she's, a, she's an old, ornery, southern, no-nonsense, never-smiled-a-day-in-her-life kind of boss, all right? Well, I had worked at a couple of CVSs, so, you know, I thought I knew everything. I, did, I didn't need her advice. I didn't need her to hold my hand. She was a bit of a micromanager. And so she would give me a... I was the front end. I was a cashier. So she would give me... In photo lab. And she gave me a project. You know, it was... We were, you know, a planogram, and I was supposed to re- redo a whole section up front. You know, take, take everything off, redo the shelves, put new products, new signage, new sell tags. Yeah, I was supposed to do this in between ringing up customers. And so I decided, um, you know, Sue told me, now this is the way you do it. Do it just like this, just like this, just like this, in that order. Got it? Yes, ma'am. Okay, good. I'll come back and check you on you in a couple hours. All right. Well, I got to looking at this thing, and I thought, that's not how you do it. I know how to do this. I've done this before. Maybe not this exact thing, but I've done I've, planograms, please. I've been in retail long enough. I got it. So I started doing it my way. And, uh, and I got to a point where I thought, Oh, shoot, you know what? I did that backwards. Like, I got to a point where it was like, now I've so messed it up, I can't keep going. Like, the shelves were off and everything was wrong, and now I have to take it all out, start from scratch, and redo it. Okay, well, I'm in the middle of standing there going, huh, when Sue comes up to check on me. And Sue comes over, and she says, what's this? What is this? And I said, well, remember how you said to do it? I did it my way. <laughs> and, uh, and then she said, you know what? She, she called, another, she called another, uh, another associate over to take my place and took me aside. And she just goes, you just don't listen. I mean, really called me out. You never listen. You're slow. And you don't listen to nothing. That's your problem. Okay. So, that's Sue. And... Um, and you know what? The thing I did with Sue, because I thought I knew better, <laughs> that's the thing that more times than we care to admit, we do with God. <laughs> God's already given us like the, the manual, right? She, he's already laid it out for us. He's already told us, here's the way you should walk. Here's the way you should go. But too many times we think, you know, it's not my first rodeo. I know how to do this. And we decide that we're not going to listen. We're going to do it our way. And, and, and what happens is, God sometimes has to take us aside, like Sue did, walk us to the stock room, open up the back door, sit us on a crate, light a cigarette, <laughs> and lean in with that smoky voice and go, you just don't listen! You ever feel like God's done that to you? Maybe minus the cigarette, maybe. <laughs> but, you know, but we do this repeatedly. That wasn't the only time Sue had to tell me I didn't listen very well. This is our fundamental problem. It's our fundamental human problem. It's the sin of pride. The sin of thinking we know better. Deep down... We, you and me, we really do think, we really do believe, no matter what we say, deep down what we really think and believe is that we are actually wiser than God. And we really do know better. And we really can outsmart the Scriptures. And we see this fundamental problem, this deep-rooted sin at the bottom of the fallen heart, exemplified over and over again in Old Testament Israel. Remember I said a couple weeks ago, as one rabbi famously stated, the Jews are just like everybody else, only more so. And what he meant by that was, you can look at Old Testament Israel, the, the history of the Jewish people in the Old Testament, and you can actually see a little illustration, a parable of what's wrong with all of us. Of what's wrong with all of us. That's what the rabbi meant by that. And you really can. And we see it exemplified in Old Testament Israel. Right here in Isaiah 48. Now 
Israel has a long history of not listening to God. Way back in Judges chapter 2. Joshua dies. And then the text says, A generation arose that did not know the Lord. And it's interesting, there's a little parallel there with the book of Exodus. Because remember, Pharaoh and Joseph were pretty close. Joseph was highly favored by Pharaoh. Well, Exodus begins by saying, Now, Joseph died. And that whole generation passed away. And then a Pharaoh, a king of Egypt, arose who did not know Joseph. And did not care for the Hebrew people. And so put them in slavery. The writer of Judges echoes that language and says, Now that whole generation died. Joshua died, that whole generation. And then a new one came up. And they didn't know the Lord. And they would not listen. Judges 2.17. They would not listen to the Lord. And by the time we catch up with Isaiah, Israel still hasn't learned the lesson. And eventually, they get exiled to Babylon. And so here in Isaiah 48, God is reminding his people of how they ended up in this mess. How did you guys get into exile to begin with? You refused to listen to the word of the Lord. And then he also tells them in this chapter that he has a plan to redeem them from exile and bring them back to their land. But he warns them that it's all going to be a complete waste of time. If you will not repent, if you will not mend your ways, stop doing the thing that got you in exile in the first place and start listening to me with obedience. And Isaiah's message in this chapter is clear. Because God has redeemed us from sin by his grace, we must respond to his grace with obedience. That's the doctrine that we're going to unpack this morning. And Isaiah uh, chapter 48 is divided evenly into two sections, 11 verses in each. And Isaiah makes two main points that support this one doctrine. One point in each section. So point one in section one is this. When we refuse to listen to God, God refuses to let us go. And in section 2, he makes this second point. When we respond to grace with obedience, God responds to obedience with blessing. That's where we're going this morning. So let's start with section 1. In verses 1 through 8, the prophet Isaiah, who is speaking for God, confronts Israel... For their rebellion against God. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who were called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord, and confess the God of Israel, catch this, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and stay themselves in the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, is his name. In these first two verses, God reminds Israel of who they are. They are the people of God. But their hearts are not right before God, as he said, not in truth or right. And then in verses 3 through 8, God reminds Israel of who he is. And he rebukes them for their unbelief and their unwillingness to listen to him. Look at 3 through 5. He says, The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass, I declared to you from of old, before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, My idol did them, my carved image And my metal image commanded them. In these verses, God says the reason that he revealed his word to them in the past and predicted their exile is because he knew how deeply idolatrous they are. He says, I told you this 
way before it happened so that you wouldn't give credit to your idols that you've turned to. Your idols didn't tell you what was going to happen beforehand. I did. He knew that his people would misinterpret and misconstrue the events of the exile and give credit to idols instead of him. So he told them all about it long ago so that when it comes to pass, they would recognize that it was the work of the one true God in fulfillment of his word. Then, verses 6 and 7, he says, You have heard, now see all this. In other words, you've heard what I said, now observe, open your eyes, look, see, and will you not declare it? In other words, won't you admit, are you still going to give credit to idols or are you going to just admit that I'm the one who did all this? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you've never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. In verses 6 and 7, God says, He's now going to repeat the same process. In the past, I revealed what was going to happen to you, and you would go into exile. And I told you that so that you wouldn't give credit to idols. Well, you gave credit to idols. (laughs) So you blew it. You wouldn't listen. So now, we're going to try again. Now, I'm going to tell you new things are about to happen. Not stuff of, this is new stuff. I didn't tell you this before. I'm telling you this now. So that when it happens, let's see if you'll give me the credit this time. He's revealing his future plans to Israel now so that when it comes to pass in the future, they won't make the same mistake. In other words, he's hoping now you will listen. Now, why does Israel keep doing this? Why did they do this back in Judges? Why did they do this all through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings? Then we get the summary in 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, and we get into the exile, and we're still dealing with this, Israel. What's, what's, what's ultimately wrong with them? What's wrong with this situation? What's the ultimate problem? Well, it's in verse 8. Verse 8. You have never heard... Now, he doesn't mean you've never audibly heard. Whenever I say, hear me when I say this, I mean listen. I don't mean physically let the sound go into your ear. You have never heard. You've never listened. You've never known or you've never understood. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. What's going on here? Well, verse 8 is the condition of all of us. When we are born again, and when we are justified by faith, and we're given the Holy Spirit, original sin is forgiven, but it doesn't. All go away. Even after we become new creatures in Christ, with a new nature and new spiritual life, we still have within us what theologians call indwelling sin. Indwelling sin. This is the remnant of original sin that stays with us for the rest of our life. It's the reason that we keep on struggling with sin. We're still sinners. That's why. Yes, we're forgiven. We are justified. We are being transformed. We are on our way to heaven. Yes and amen. But we're still sinners. And that root of pride that we began with that root of pride, that fundamental human problem, it's still tangled around our souls in the bottom of our hearts. And it makes even born-again Christians act like stubborn, rebellious Israel. Why is it that repeatedly in life we find ourselves in a place where, you know what, I have not been walking in, in obedience to the Lord. I have not been obedient... I have not been listening to the scriptures. I I know what God expects of me and I've been going the other direction. What happens? It's because we still deep down 
don't think we need to listen. And we end up like Israel. In these first eight verses, Israel gets described as obstinate and iron-necked. <laughs> it says, all that tissue in your neck that allows you to turn and nod, yes. <laughs> yes, Lord, I will do it. It hardens into a piece of iron so that you can't say yes anymore. All you can do is, no. <laughs> Sin, it, like, it's this neck brace almost that won't let you turn your head and nod yes. Sin stiffens your neck so that you resist. He says, I love this, hard-headed. Listen to how he described the, the, the image of telling us that we're hard-headed. Verse 4, he says, you're obstinate, your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead is brass. I'm picturing like a student sitting in class and no matter what the teacher says, it's ping, ping, unlearnable. It's brass. It ain't getting in there. <laughs> no matter how much stimuli you give him, it, he ain't learning. I love that. Hard-headed. A forehead that's full of, that's brass. Truth ain't getting in there. He's just not going to listen. They're described as treacherous, as rebellious. People who just clog their ears. And we do this. We don't want to listen. So we, you and I, we've got to beware. We've got to beware of these sins and strive to put them to death. Yes, you have indwelling sin. Sin doesn't just go away and you're perfectly holy and righteous forever and ever and ever. The minute you get saved. No, actually the minute you get saved is when you actually can start fighting sin for the first time. And that's the evidence that you're saved because now you're struggling with sin, trying to not let it dominate you anymore. Whereas before, domination by sin, you loved it. That's where you want to be. But now you're new. You're a new creature. And what do you do with that remnant of sin, that old Adam and Eve that still lives down in your heart and still listens to that serpent? What do you do with it? You try to crush its head. You put it to death. They called it mortification. And the old theologians said you've got to mortify that sin, which doesn't mean embarrass the sin. It means kill it. Put it to death. So we've got to beware of when we start feeling like our necks are tightening up and we feel a little obstinate, a little hard-hearted, a little rebellious. We have to check ourselves and make sure that we're humbly listening to God and put those prideful sins to death. That's what was wrong with Israel. They refused to listen. Now, in the last three verses of this first section, verses 9 to 11, Israel, oh, excuse me, Isaiah shows us God's response to our unwillingness to listen to God and obey His Word. So again, we're talking about believers. Not unconverted unbelievers, but the people of God, you and me. When we get into that place where we stop listening to God, we just get stubborn, we're unwilling, we won't listen, we won't obey. Isaiah tells us that God responds to our rebellion two ways. If we belong to Him, this is for the believer, He responds two ways. And He even tells us why God responds that way in verses 9 to 11. So let's look at the first way God responds. It's in verse 9. He says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you that I may not cut you off. Oh, I hope you can hear the gospel in a verse like that. God defers his anger from you. God restrains his wrath from you. He doesn't want to cut you off. God saves you by His grace and makes you His own. And when you continue to sin and rebel and refuse to listen to Him, He gives you more grace. He defers His anger. He restrains it from you so that you're not cut off. Your God doesn't want to cut you off, Christian. Which is 
cutting off is just biblical language for eliminating you, right? Getting rid of you for good. He doesn't want to get rid of you for good. Your God is full of mercy and His grace is not conditional upon your obedience. Hear that. God's grace is not conditional upon your obedience. You cannot exhaust His grace with your sin. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And Romans 8.1 is very relevant here. Romans 8.1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? If you're in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, there's no damnation, no condemnation at all for you. None of it. And all that's left is God's fatherly grace. Nothing but mercy and grace is left for you. God, in fact deferred and restrained his anger from you. But on the cross, he held nothing back. He did not defer his anger from his only son. He did not restrain it from him. He did not hold it back. He poured it out in full on your substitute so that you will never be cut off. Jesus got cut off for you. He bore the curse in your place. And now you get to go free. Your substitute bore the curse for you. And now if you're in Him, there's no condemnation left. There's nothing but the grace of your merciful heavenly Father. That's how God responds to us. That's his first response to us. He defers his anger. But now look at the second response in verse 10. Verse 10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. God's first response is he defers his anger. His second response when we just keep on refusing to listen to him is he refines us with affliction. This is the other side of the first response. Because do not imagine that, oh, God responds with grace means he lets me get away with it. He's just an indulgent old dad and he just lets me get away with whatever. And I can sin all I want. And grace will just keep abounding, right? We're under grace, not law. So why not let's just sin it up and let grace just keep on covering more and more sin. Glory to God, right? No. No. There is a discipline that comes with grace. Grace cannot be deserved by your obedience... Rather, your obedience is deserved by grace. Grace is worthy of your obedience. And Paul says this at least four different times in his letters in the New Testament. For example, Philippians 1.27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, he does not mean live in a way that deserves the gospel. Because you can't do that. What he means is live in the way the gospel deserves. It's important not to get those confused. Live the way the gospel of grace deserves. Not in a way that earns the gospel, but in a way that's worthy of the grace you've been given. When you give in to your indwelling sin instead of fighting it. When you make friends with the flesh instead of putting it to death. God responds by afflicting your flesh so that you will learn to hate it. William Tyndall, my favorite 
Protestant reformer, English reformer. He said there is nothing more sure, nothing less doubtful in the Bible than this, that if you, as a Christian, refuse to fight your flesh, God will put enmity between you and your flesh. And he will grind that flesh to powder, if he has to, to get you to forsake it and turn from it and live for him. And this is not his anger crushing you and damning you and destroying you. No, this is the discipline of a good father who will not let you stay in the sinful, prideful mess that he finds you in. He would be a derelict father if he let his children just run wild in sin and never lifted a finger in the name of grace. That's not grace. That's negligence. God's not a negligent father. And so what he does is he makes sure that if we won't be at enmity with our flesh, he will put us at enmity with our flesh. And he can do it a hundred thousand billion different ways. There isn't just one template for how he can do it. And he'll make it specific for you and your life and what he knows will be effective to wean you off this world and make you fight your flesh. Verse 10 again. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. God sins, and we've seen this already in, in, in past sermons in Isaiah 40 to 55. God is the one who sends trials into our lives. Hardships and difficulties, pain and suffering, losses and crosses... And he calls it the furnace of affliction. But again, this is not condemnation. This is not wrath. This is not his judicial punishment before he finally drops you off in hell. No, this is his grace. The affliction is his mercy and grace. That's what we have to wrap our heads around. He says it is refinement. He's refining you. If you won't fight your flesh, God will. And he does it with affliction. He is refining his people, purging them, burning away all their impurities, all that pride. Because, precisely because, Christian, he loves you. And there are examples I could give in the New Testament. I'm just going to give you one. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Second Corinthians chapter 1, 8 through 10. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, We do not want you... To be unaware, brothers, of the affliction. There's our word, the furnace of affliction. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, beyond what we could possibly bear, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. So you hear this? This is the Apostle Paul. If anybody wa is walking with the Lord, it's Paul. You see, Paul had a problem. He was a little bit too full of himself sometimes. Which he says again at the end of the letter. Remember that thorn in the flesh? He said it's a messenger from Satan. But God sent that messenger from Satan to keep him from being so proud of all the revelation he had been receiving from the Lord. It was to keep him humble. See, Paul struggled with pride too. And this says God brought him to the brink of death. 
so that he would do what? Learn to rely on the God who raises the dead. And if God does that for Paul, listen, if he does it for Jesus, book of Hebrews says Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He learned how to obey better. And he was already perfect. In other words, we're not getting out of this. We're not getting out of this. God uses the trials and difficulties and the pain and the hardship. And I mean, and, and, it, and that doesn't diminish how awful suffering is. It doesn't diminish it at all. It actually fills it with glorious, sovereign purpose. It gives it sovereign, glorious purpose and meaning. And again, listen, it doesn't mean that every time you suffer, it's because of some sin God's trying to get you for. They don't think about it like that. But it does mean at least this, that God intends your afflictions for your sanctification. God intends the afflictions you experience in life to make you more holy and so that you will die more and more to sin. That is the discipline of grace. Those are God's two responses when we won't listen. He doesn't let us go. More and more grace abounds, but that grace comes with discipline. He refines us so that we'll learn to obey more and better. And then he tells us why. Why does God do this? What's the purpose? We don't always get told what the purpose is, but he tells us here. I love this. What's the ultimate purpose behind these two responses? Well, the point is made twice in verse 9 and three times in verse 11. Verse 9, verse 11. Check it out. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you. Verse 11, he says it twice. This isn't me repeating it. He repeats himself. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God's ultimate aim is His own glory. His own worship. His own praise. But what is this glory? It's a glory that gives you grace. It's a glory that doesn't cut you off. It's a glory that makes sure you endure to the end and be saved forever. In other words... God's ultimate aim is His own glory, but it's the glory of being your perfect Savior. Verse 1 says, you are called by His name. And if you're called by His name, that means God's name is on the line with what happens to you. God puts His name, His reputation, His sake... His praise, His glory. He puts Himself on the line with how well He saves you. How well He cares for you. And that means that if He fails to bring you all the way to the end, that means you'd be lost. So in other words, your eternal destiny is completely tied up with God being who He is. So that if you end up being lost, He has to stop being the glorious God He is. But He can't do that, and that's why you're secure. That's why you're secure. Why does God keep pouring out His grace on you? We sin over and over and over, and we don't listen and don't listen and don't listen. Why does he keep pouring out grace? For his name's sake. Why does God refine you with affliction to help you hate your sin and put it to death? For his own sake. As I've said a couple times in this series, it has to be said again here. The more passionately God pursues his glory, the more passionately he is loving you and saving you. He gets all the praise, you get all the salvation. When we refuse to listen to God, God refuses to let us go. 
for his namesake and for his glory. That's the point of section one. Now, section two we cover more briefly. Section one is just, that is, that is rich theology for your soul. That is rich biblical truth for us to take away from this service and really think on. When we won't listen, God responds these two ways for his own glory. How do we, how do we apply that to our life? How do we use that as the lens through which we view our own lives and our own trials and our own circumstances? Think about it from a God-centered perspective. This perspective. And listen to the word of the Lord. Now section two, like I said, we will cover this much more briefly. Verses 12 to 22, second half of the chapter. In section two, we learn what happens when we listen to God and obey his commandments and walk in his ways. So once he's done his work in section one, we won't listen. He gives grace. He disciplines us. Now we turn, we repent, we mend our ways. Now we're going to start listening. Section two tells us what happens when we start doing that. The section begins in verses 12 and 13 where God tells us that all the hosts of heaven stand in attention at his word. The stars, the planets, the galaxies. When God says, attention, they stand in attention, he says. And then in verses 14 to 16, he says that, listen guys, if the stars can do it, what's your problem? That's my paraphrase. If the stars obey... Can't you, you can obey, right? Stars don't even have a will. You have a will. Come on. That's, that's what he's telling them. He tells the people about these new things he's about to do in verses 14 to 16. The new things which he mentioned already back in verse 6. And in these verses, he's talking about Cyrus. He's talking about our old friend, King Cyrus, king of the Persians, who he is going to send to conquer the Babylonians and release the Jews from their exile. He's telling them about this in advance here in these verses, 14 to 16. Now, notice the theme of these verses. From 12 to 16, he says it over and over again. He says it in verse 12. He says it in verse 14. He says it in verse 16. He says, listen to me. That's the theme of this whole chapter. Listen, hear, pay attention. Get busy now doing that thing you refused to do back in section 1. In other words, you weren't doing it. You weren't listening in the first section. Now start listening. That means repent. Stop resisting what I say and start listening. God gives us His grace not so that we can continue in sin but so that we will learn a new obedience. We will learn repentance. Grace is meant to discipline us, not just the way a, a stern, disappointed father disciplines his unruly and disobedient children, not because he hates them, but because he loves them and wants them to grow and mature and be obedient. It disciplines us that way, but it also disciplines us in the way that we learn a discipline. We learn how to walk in obedience. God gives us His grace so that we will learn a new obedience. Grace is meant to discipline us. Grace teaches us to obey God's commandments. And it disciplines us when we don't obey. So that we will repent and return to the narrow way. God gives us grace, and that grace is worthy of a response. It's worthy of our obedience. And Paul says this in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, or disciplining us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's what grace does. It doesn't just forgive us and then get lenient with all of, our, all of our rebellion. It forgives us and then it starts teaching us how to walk in a new obedience. That's verses 12 to 16. It tells us we need to repent and begin to walk in new obedience. And grace is given to teach us how to do that. And now we'll finish with the last part of, the, of this section. Verses 17 to 22. 
Isaiah ends the chapter by revealing the benefits that will be ours when we listen to God's word and do what he says. What are they? Verse 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. God redeems us and makes us his own. And he teaches us the way we should go, the prosperous path of obedience. I am the Lord who teaches you to profit, how to walk in a profitable, prosperous path of obedience. And now when you start doing that, look at verses uh, 18 to 19, what happens? He says, oh, this is God, oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river. And your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off. Christian, the path of obedience brings peace like a river. A river overflowing with abundant righteousness. Righteousness that extends to generational blessings. Blessings that last and get remembered as a legacy of faithfulness. This is the prosperous way of obedience, and it is also the path of true joy. Look at verse 20. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. The people of God walk in the Lord's ways, listening to his voice, enjoying all his benefits, rejoicing in his perfect redemption. And when you sin, when you refuse to listen to God's word, guys, you miss out. You miss out on joy. We sin because we think that's going to be more enjoyable. That's going to be better for me than obedience. Sin will taste better, feel better. I want that more than obedience, more than holiness. We think that's where joy lies. But when we refuse to listen to God and we go that way, our own way, the sinful way, we miss out on what true joy is. Obedience isn't this big burden we have to carry around on our backs. It's just drudgery. No, obedience is the path of joy for the Christian. For the born-again heart that loves God's Word, this is a joy. And that joy is there for the taking Christian, if we'll just listen. And not only is joy yours, but God's rich provisions as well. Verse 21. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. He's thinking back to the Exodus and he's saying, This new Exodus, I'm going to take care of you just the same if you'll just walk in the way I say to go. You will get weary in your walk with the Lord, Christian. It will be weary this is why we decide sometimes not to listen. Sometimes we just get spiritually tired. And that's because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But as you walk the path of obedience, and as you grow tired and sluggish, as will inevitably happen to all of us, God will give you rest. He promises to give you rest and to renew you with his living water, with the waters of Christ and his spirit. He will refresh your soul and sustain you through those dry seasons and those barren places of life. That's his promise. When we repent, he renews. When we respond to grace with obedience, God responds to obedience with blessing. And those are spiritual blessings first and foremost. So Christian, this is the conclusion. When you listen, or excuse me, when you refuse to listen, you miss out on true joy and peace. The joy and peace that only Christ can give. Isaiah ends with a warning in verse 22. He says, there is no peace for the wicked. No peace for the wicked. So hear the scriptures this morning. Listen to the word of God today. Since God has redeemed us from sin by his grace... We must respond to that grace with obedience. 
That is what grace demands and deserves from each one of us. And when you rebel, He doesn't let you go. He extends more grace and He disciplines you for your good and for His glory. And when you repent and walk in obedience, He promises you the waters of renewal and peace like a river. It is only those who listen to God's Word who can truly say, no matter what affliction they experience in life, it is well with my soul. Is it well with you today, Christian? Is it well with you today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, so much for your word and for the clarity and power that it gives. We thank you that it illumines the sinful places in our hearts and it reveals to us who we really are. But it, more importantly, it reveals who you are in your good ways with us. And it teaches us that your grace is sufficient to cover all of our sin and your grace is too good to leave us in sin. So Lord, teach us how to interpret life in a God-centered, a radically Christ-focused, God-centered, Bible-soaked way. So that everything that happens, the high and the low, we will see it through the lens of the gospel of grace. Teach us how to sanctify our trials. Teach us how to listen, to mortify our old prideful stubbornness. To not be stiff-necked and obstinate and hard-headed. But Lord, be merciful to our weaknesses. Our spirits are so often so willing, but the flesh is so weak. So Lord, teach us how to put the flesh to death. And how to lean into the glorious resources you've provided through your word and spirit. To get that renewal. And give us, Lord, that peace like a river that will sustain us through whatever you bring our way. And may we always remember to give you all the glory and to praise your name as we do now through Christ. Amen.